It's August 14th, 2015, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 5, Vidurus Talks with Maitreya, Text 26. Kala Vritya Tumayayam Kala Vritya Tumayayam Unamaya Madhoksaja Unamaya Madhoksaja Purushenat Mabhutena Purushenat Mabhutena Viryamada Viryamadatta Viryayam Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada The Supreme Living Being in His feature as the transcendental Purusha Incarnation, who is the Lord's plenary expansion, impregnates the material nature of three modes, and thus by the influence of eternal time, the living entities appear. PURPORT The offspring of any living being is born after the father impregnates the mother with semen, and the living entity floating in the semen of the father takes the shape of the mother's form. Similarly, mother material nature cannot produce any living entity from her material elements unless and until she is impregnated with living entities by the Lord himself. That is the mystery of the generation of the living entities. This impregnating process is performed by the first Purusha incarnation, Karana, Karana Navasai Vishnu, Simply by his glance over material nature, the whole matter is accomplished. We should not understand the process of impregnation by the Supreme Personality of Godhead in terms of our conception of sex. That's an interesting sentence because Srila Prabhupada in the previous paragraph used our conception of sex in order to explain the impregnation process of the Personality of Godhead. So after using that as an analogy... Then he's now he's going to talk about the ways in which that analogy is not ac- applicable. Going on here, the omnipotent Lord can impregnate just by his eyes, and therefore he is called all potent. Each and every part of his transcendental body can perform each and every function of the other parts. This is confirmed in the Brahma Samhita 532. Angani Yasya Manti. In Bhagavad Gita 14.3, also the same principle is confirmed. Mama Yonir Mahadbrahma Tasman Garbam Didam Yaham. When the cosmic creation is manifested, the living entities are directly supplied from the Lord 
They are never products of material nature. Thus, no scientific advancement of material science can ever produce a living being. That is the whole mystery of the material creation. The living entities are foreign to matter, and thus they cannot be happy unless they are situated in the same spiritual life as the Lord. The mistaken living being, out of forgetfulness of this original condition of life, unnecessarily wastes time trying to become happy in the material world. The whole Vedic process is to remind one of this essential feature of life. The Lord offers the conditioned soul a material body for his so-called enjoyment. But if one does not come to his senses and enter into spiritual consciousness, the Lord again puts him in the unmanifested condition as it existed in the beginning of the creation. The Lord is described here as Viryavan, or the greatest potent being, because he impregnates material nature with innumerable living entities who are conditioned from time immemorial. Kala vritya tumaya yanguna maya madhoksajaha purushenatmabhutena viryamadhatavirjavan. The Supreme Living Being in his feature is a transcendental Purusha incarnation, who is the Lord's plenary expansion impregnates the material nature of three modes, and thus by the influence of eternal time, the living entities appear. So this verse is dealing with our identity. Who am I? Where did I come from? What is my origin? What is my purpose? This basic question of who am I informs everything that we do and think and desire materially or spiritually. Sometimes a person due to some accident or some disease loses their memory of their material identity. They get amnesia. As I've mentioned before, I know one devotee to whom this happened. Actually, I know two devotees to whom this happened. Uh, One person who it happened before he joined the movement So he was visiting the temple and he was trying to practice Krishna consciousness but having some difficulty. And he saw a picture of Lord Nisingadev and somehow, intuitively, he decided this is the being, this is the personality whom I should ask for help. So he asked Lord Nisingadev, please remove all my obstacles. Vignan Vinash, the one who removes the obstacles, is a name for Lord Nisingadev. Actually, sometimes the prayer is given to Ganesh. To get rid of the obstacles, but Ganesh is getting rid of the obstacles because he's keeping the lotus feet of Lord Nasingadev on the tumuli on his head. Anyway, this gentleman prayed to Lord Nasingadev. And a week later, he came to consciousness lying at the side of the road, not knowing who he was or how he got there. But he did remember something about Krishna consciousness, and he started coming to the temple, and soon after that, he moved in the ashram. About two years later, his spiritual master advised him to try to remember his identity, and he was able eventually, gradually, to restore his memory of everything except the week between his prayer and waking up on the side of the road. But we would consider this very disconcerting. You know, or a person has some kind of an accident, they wake up in the hospital with amnesia. You know, who am I? I don't know these people. 
you know, there there's some famous, uh, some well-known stories, true stories about people like this, where they they come out of an accident or a coma and they, they don't know that they're married, they don't know they have children, they don't know what their job is. Uh, it's funny, sometimes they may have a sense of how to do things, but they don't have a sense of their identity. And without that sense of identity, they're not able to make decisions. Frankly, all of us are born into such a condition. All of us at the time of birth, we're exactly in that situation. You know, who am I? As I say many times at the time of death, that's what we lose. We lose that sense of identification, which is why we find death so fearful. Because we've acted according to that identity our whole life. I am Jane Smith. I am, you know, Arvind Patel. I am this person's child and this person's spouse and this person's student, this person's teacher, this person's employer this citizen of this country, and everything we've done has been according to that identity. And then at death, it's finished. It's just finished. Many people who have near-death experiences, they report that as as they leave their body and they see the body, they don't identify with it. They just think, oh, that, that person is in trouble over there. And it may take some time before they, oh, that, that was my body. But they, they don't identify with it. And if they do identify with it, they're, they're often pulled back into the body because of their attachments. Oh, my poor mother, my poor this. And again, they're back in the body. So death is letting go of all of those upadis and everything that we've done to nurture them, all of the effort we've put into nurturing our relationships. I mean, I don't put effort into nurturing my relationships with people with whom I have, there's nothing to do with my identity. If somebody is not related to my identity, I put no effort into my relationship with such a person. If possessions have nothing to do with my identity, I put no effort into maintaining them. If activities have nothing to do with my identity, I put no energy into doing them or becoming expert in them. So death is fearful because we lose everything that we've invested in. And we realize that everything, as Prabhupada says here in the purport, has been a waste of time. That we were pouring our effort into a false identity. You know, it's something like you have a play, a part to play in drama, and you forget about your real life, and you invest all of your energy into the drama. Sometimes people talk about this a conflict of identities in terms of do you pour your energy into your work or to your family and you know they realize oh my family was more important than work right they put all their energy into their customers their clients their employers their company and in doing so they neglect their spouse and their children and their parents and so forth and then when they get old they see that the People in their company didn't care about them, and their family did, and now they've lost the more important relationship, and so forth. That they wasted their time. But all of our identities here are like that. They're not really our our identity. We're neglecting our, our real identity for the false identity. And then, if not at death, then certainly at birth. 
Lord Kapiladeva explains later on in this canto how after death the living entity is conditioned to forget the previous body and to be prepared for the next body. And then at birth we don't know who we are. We don't know how to operate the body that we're in. We try to operate it and it's just sort of spastic going in this direction and that direction. It takes us a long time to figure out how to get our hand to our mouth and how to, it takes us months to figure out how to pick up something and hold on to it, how to, how to move to go where we want to go. Right? It takes us years to understand the language that's being spoken around us and then to speak it properly and, and to start, oh, this is my mother, this is my father, this is my brother and sister, and this is, and to forge that new identity. And then to act again. And because we have these changing identities, none of which are ours, a rational human being will at least sometimes ask, well, who am I? Who am I really? Am I really defined? just by the particular body and and family and race and society that I I happen to be born in? Am Am I really defined by that, by others' expectations of me, by the particular nature I seem to have in this life? Is that really who I am? And where did I come from? I read recently some sociological research that universally children believe, no matter what they're taught, no matter what the philosophy of their culture, that they existed in terms of their emotions and desires before birth, before being in the mother's womb, that their sense of of desire and, and emotion is eternal, beginningless. So occasionally we ask, Any human being will ask occasionally, who am I really? Is this identity I'm acting according to, is that my real identity? What am I doing here? What am I supposed to accomplish? What's my purpose? What has real meaning? The only thing that can have real meaning is something that's in connection to our real identity. It's not possible to have real meaning in connection to a false identity. The foundation is false. Everything else must be false. So this one verse very nicely explains who we really are, what is our origin, where have we come from, and what is our purpose. So of course we have our own experience. We have our own experience that I have a continuing sense of identity that I have a sense that I existed before my birth in this particular family. I have a sense that I came from somewhere. It's one of the one of the early questions of a child. Where do I come from? And I have a sense that I'm not going to die. I mean, if I were just a material being then why would all of us have this sense of eternality? Death is around us constantly. Most of us, every day, see some dead creature, maybe just an insect. See some, some plant, some insect that's died. We're reminded of death constantly. 
some piece of fruit or vegetable in our refrigerator has rotted. And yet we have a sense that we're, we're eternal. So we have this experience. We have a sense of beginninglessness, a sense of endlessness. We have a sense of transcendence to our bodily changes. That I'm the same person in dreaming, wakefulness, and deep sleep. Yesterday, my two-year-old grandson was had, had figured out how to open up my son's buckwheat-filled pillow. The cover was being washed, and he started taking out the pieces of buckwheat and making a mess. And so my son cleaned up the mess and gently told his little son, you know, this is not good, don't do this, it stays in there. And the little boy was laughing, and I said, I remember having this experience with my own father. I remember when I was two years old, it's one of my few early memories, that we had a humidifier. And I used to throw toys and paper in the humidifier when I was two, and it would block the water vapor, and my father would very gently and very kindly, like I saw my son doing yesterday, tell me that I shouldn't do that, and I'd watch as he'd clean it up, just like my grandson was watching yesterday. And then as soon as my father would go to the other room, I would put toys back in the humidifier again. I remember it very clearly. But I don't have that mentality anymore. It's not. I don't have the, the body of a two-year-old or the mentality, hopefully, of a two-year-old. So we have this experience that we are something transcendent. We have this experience when other people die. Prabhupada points this out a lot. Somebody that we love dies. And we say, oh, she's gone, he's gone, but the body is there. If you're there when someone dies, the body a moment before death and a body after moment after death, what is the difference? What is the difference? The difference is that the, the person is gone. The chemicals are all still there. And that's why they can take organs from a dead body and transplant them. They're still viable for some time. Then we have a known human history. Known human history is that life has always come from life. We have no historical example of matter producing life. No matter where you look in history for thousands of years, in any human culture, there's no such story that matter becomes alive or that matter produces life. The history is always uh, that life comes from life. And modern science has not been able to produce life. Even the most simple life, even a grain of rice, the scientists cannot produce that. They cannot produce a tiny little seed because the little seed is a soul within that. Uh, they could produce something that wouldn't grow. But they cannot produce a seed that will grow simply by chemical manipulations. They're not able to do that. I mean, the scientists are not even able to produce matter. I give the example all the time, you know, women who don't breastfeed their babies, they buy some formula, some chemical milk, but all the doctors say that the mother's natural milk is much better for the baby than the chemical milk. This means the doctors cannot imitate the mother's milk. 
they can look at the chemical formula, but they can't create it themselves. If anybody could, if, if anyone could create artificial milk that was exactly the same as mother's milk, they would become a billionaire many times over. So many scientists are working on this problem. They can't even produce matter. They can't even change cow's milk into human milk. And yet they dare to say, as Prabhupada would say, we can create life. They can talk like that. But it is no meaning. So our personal experience, human history, science, all points to the fact that our consciousness is something different. There's a Korean scientist recently published an article saying that there's no way that consciousness can be explained in terms of mathematics, in terms of physics. There's just no explanation for it at all. So, of course, this is the beginning of spiritual wisdom. Srila Prabhupada said that if we're going to teach Krishna consciousness to others, the first thing we should teach them is that we're not this body. And this is how Krishna begins. Najayate miyate vakadachin, nayam bhutva bhavita vana buyaha, ajo nicha shasvato yam purano nahanyate hanyamane shavire. In this verse, we're called viryam. It's interesting, Vish Krishna is called viryavan, and we're called viryam. Virya means potency. Action, ability, life. We are that principle. And our origin is from the original potent. If we are not matter, our origin must be spiritual. Now, the modern scientists have many origin stories, all of them fantastic, supernatural, unproven, and unprovable. I mean, we may balk at the origin story here, the great Mahavishnu, Yakarin Arnavajalay, Bhattisma Yoga, Nidramananta Jagananda Saramakupa, Adhara Shaktimavalambya Paramsamartin, Yasya Kinaspasitikala Matavalambya, Jivantiloma Vilaja Jagananda Nata Vishnu Mahansi Hyasya Kalavisesha. That there's these Purusha incarnations as explained here. Of course, Purusha also literally means male. The incarnations as a supreme male, the supreme viryavan, the supreme potent, the supreme alive. That the Lord is totally alive. He is life. And from this life comes our life. Not that he creates us, But like the sunshine coming from the sun, the sun and the sunshine exist simultaneously. There's no meaning to sun without sunshine, no meaning to sunshine without sun. At the same time, the sunshine is dependent on the sun and is in one sense created by the sun, although there's not a point of creation. So we exist eternally, and as Prabhupada explains here, we go back and forth in our conditioned state from being in the body of Mahavishnu, sleeping, to having a material body fashioned by the modes of material nature. And the Lord simply glances at material nature, and in that glance is time, is Lord Shiva, who then impregnates the material nature with us. 
and their material nature supplies the bodies according to our material desires in the three modes of material nature. Although this is certainly a supernatural explanation, it involves, as Prabhupada says here, Angani Yase Sakalendriya Ritimanti, that the Lord can impregnate with his glance. The scientists have no less of a supernatural explanation. And in fact, their, uh, their supernatural explanation gives no basis for the existence of consciousness and no basis for the idea of our identity. And they say some infinitely small, infinitely dense chunk appeared somehow in nothingness and for no reason whatsoever, after its no reason whatsoever appearance, it exploded, and in its explosion it created order out of chaos. It created all the varieties, and then somehow by an electrical storm, matter became alive and it, you know, evolved into coconut trees and mango trees and alligators and mosquitoes and hummingbirds. And I, it, This is absurd. Uh, anyone who wants to criticize the huge multi-handed form of the Lord the, the scientists don't give any less of a supernatural explanation but the explanation in the Bhagavatam is personal there's a person Mahavishnu Karunadakishai Vishnu is a person Maya is a person Lord Shiva is a person. These are our actual mother and fathers who have, who with deliberation and with thought and with care and with love, give us facility in this material world. And that is our origin. Of course, ultimately, our, our origin is not in this world at all. We have come to this world because uh, we wanted to have, we were rebellious against the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So when it talks here about our origin, he, he places us in this world. He places us in this world from another sphere, from another area of consciousness. And we are then making the choice. We are making the choice to, as it's nicely explained in this purport, uh, we want some enjoyment in this world. And actually, we cannot have enjoyment separate from Krishna. That is not possible. But we want to try it. Even in this world, people try to enjoy by stealing and, and raping and killing. and cannot enjoy in that way. But somebody may want to try it. Uh, they want to try uh, getting enjoyment through some intoxicant. Or, you know, that one can try. One has the freedom to try. One has to take the consequences also. So we may want to try to enjoy through uh, different kinds of bodies. Let me try this one. 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 And then after a while, uh, the Lord says, okay, enough. Enough. In the fifth canto, it's explained that Ananta becomes disgusted at the living entities transmigrating and trying to enjoy. And so in his, in his anger fire comes from his mouth and he just burns up the whole material world you know it's like you get out some toys for your kids oh let me try this game oh no no I'm tired of that let me try this game let me try this game let me try and every every game they get out they're fighting with their brothers and sisters and 
they're not respecting the rules of the house and they're throwing the toys around and after a while the parents say okay we're going to put all the games away we can play with them tomorrow so periodically the Lord says okay all the bodies away <laughs> come back and just go into a deep sleep and then again the Lord out of his mercy says alright let's try again So once we realize that we are different from this body, once we realize that's our identity, then we should act according to that identity. And every religious, spiritual system among human society is trying to engage people with acting according to their real identity. It's not that only the Hare Krishna movement is teaching that one should act out of love for God and out of service to God. Every religious system teaches this. Of course, religious systems tend to degrade in time. You know, they tend to degrade so that, that people will say, oh, well, you know, burning down houses and raping 12-year-old girls is my service to God. You know, that, that happens. But the concept of service to God as being our real identity is one of the primary features of human society. It is the benefit given by having this human body. In the species lower than human beings, the animals cannot question, who am I? They have a sense, I am a dog, I am a pigeon, and and that's it. They don't ask these questions. Where did I come from? They don't have a physics department and an astronomy department. One of my grandsons works at the visitor center for one of the telescope areas here. And people come from all over the world to look at the stars and ask questions about the universe. But no animals go. He was saying the other day, people are coming from all different countries, but there's no animals. The parrots aren't coming into the center and saying, you know, show me Saturn. What's the meaning of the universe? So these are questions that only we, we can ask, humans and above. And religion gives us a way of answering them. But we are very, very fortunate, those of us who follow the line from Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Our, our fortune is inestimable because in human society, even the people who ask these questions, who am I, where did I come from, what are my choices, mostly, most religions today, first of all, they teach people to be Sakama devotees. They teach people to worship God for some material benefit. Their goal is some kind of material heaven where they'll be again with their family on earth and so forth. And their information about the Purusha, the personality of Godhead, is very sketchy. Oh, he's not material, he's great, he's all-pervading or something. Krishna says, right? Ramana, he 
Krishna says, I am the basis of the impersonal Brahman, which is immortal, imperishable, and eternal, and is the constitutional position of ultimate happiness. And that's the, about it that most people know about God. And then even if they choose to serve God, their choices are so limited by what Prabhupada would call their poor fund of knowledge. And in their limited choices, most of them, at best, attain to one of the higher planets within this universe. Most of the religious and spiritual people, they're, they're really, they're just karmakandis, which is a whole lot better than being karma. But that's all that they go to. Maybe some of them merge into the Brahma Jyoti, or some of them attain to the planet of the super soul. But we have information beyond this material sphere. We have information of Vaikuntha. As we're going on here in the Bhagavatam, we're going to get to these chapters describing the spiritual world. The spiritual bodies, the airplanes, the buildings. And Jesus just said to his followers, there are many mansions in my Father's kingdom. And that was it. And he said more. We have no record of it. But we have a full description, not full description. We have a description of Vaikuntha. We have a description of the highest planet in Vaikuntha, Goloka Vrindavan. And Krishna comes as described in the 10th canto. And he gives us this replica of, of Vrindavan. So we who are followers of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, uh, we, we don't have to just say, I'm not this body. We can say, what am I? Who am I? And we can start working to that identity. Now that's meaningful. Anything I do according to my real identity, that's meaningful because it has a basis of meaning. And amazingly enough, we can act according to our real identity. Even within this world, even while apparently being a good husband or wife or citizen or brahmachari, sannyasi, whatever, even as we appear to be doing a good job according to those identities, we can really be acting according to our eternal identity. We can be making our choices as to what would a servant of Krishna do? Just like these Christians, they have this thing, what would Jesus do as their basis for action? Of course, the problem is that they're not Jesus, so it's a little bit difficult. But what would a good servant of God do? I mean, even we can say, what is what would a good disciple do? It can be that simple for us. We can understand that. Because we can understand what does a good son, a good daughter do? That we have that pretty clear. So we can say, what does a good disciple do? Therefore, yasyat prasada bhagavat prasada, yasyat prasada nagati kitopi. It may be too difficult for us to say, what, what would a good servant of Krishna do? To know, you know, am I a, a, a young gopi, an older gopi, a young cowherd boy, one of the older cowherd men, am I a servant? Maybe we don't know any of that yet. But we can always say, what would a good follower of Srila Prabhupada do? What would a good follower of my guru do? 
how can I act in this situation according to that identity? And that concept of loving the guru and being a good disciple bridges us to what would a servant of Krishna do? What would a lover of Krishna do? And as we act in that way, all the philosophy mentioned in this verse and purport will become clear to us, like the sun that lights up everything in the daytime. This philosophy of non-identification with the body of our origin beyond time and space will move from some interesting and cogent theoretical idea to a practically lived experience. As we act according to our identity, and because our identity is real, we will realize our identity. Even an ordinary amnesiac, if they act according to their identity in this life, generally, not always, but generally, they will revive all or parts of that identity. What to speak of if we act according to our real identity? So this is the question we should be asking ourselves. What would a good disciple do? What would a good servant of Krishna do? And let me do that. So if there are any questions or comments. Brother Amal, I have a question about uh, getting direction from our spiritual master. Um, how is that practically done? I mean, in term, what, what I'm trying to say is more than just general instruction, are we supposed to get specific instruction? I mean, or, or, or is that kind of left up to us what exactly we do? Do you understand my question? I, I think so. I mean, the only instructions I got personally from Srila Prabhupada, um, I got one specific instruction. Other than that, I mean, I only got very general instructions along with everybody else. And even some personal instruction, you know, that may change. I mean, I know, thinking about two devotees, I know two disciples of Srila Prabhupada, one of whom was given an instruction go to such and such a country and preach there. Now that's not what this person is doing anymore at all. He understood that as a very time, place, and circumstance kind of instruction, which he was to follow then and that he's not required to follow now. And then I know another disciple who was given a, an instruction, you know, please have take this particular service at this particular temple, and she's been doing that for 45 years, her reason being that was the specific instruction I was given. And I, I was thinking, you know, well, that's nice, but I don't know if Srila Prabhupada necessarily intended that you were only to do that particular service at that particular place for the rest of your life. So we, we cert, how do we get specific instructions, I think, is, is more the question here. And, of course, Prabhupada talks about in the fourth canto, that the faithful disciple when the spiritual master passes from this world will get instructions from Chaitaguru, from the super soul. Also, we're very fortunate, uh, those of us who follow Srila Prabhupada, that he left so many books and, and lectures and so forth. And I found the books and lectures to be very personal indeed. I have found that I get very specific direction, very personal direction from Srila Prabhupada's books and lectures. And then there's also the whole Sangha of devotees. There's, of course, we have to discriminate uh, as to who is an Uttama, Madhya, and a Kanista, Bhakta, and so forth. But we have the Sangha of the devotees. 
we have the help of the devotees in order to get instruction and at least my own personal experience is that I have gotten much help from the devotees in following Srila Prabhupada. Not always. I mean, I've had, I've had mixed experience. But I'd say overall the experience has been very positive. I mean, one has to use one's own discrimination. One, one has to grow up, so to speak. In the traditional Vedic scenario, a person took a guru when they were a child. They would live at the home of the guru. The, the guru kula literally means the family of the guru. And they would take initiation when they were very young, generally when they were a teenager. And they would be given uh, an intense personal one-on-one instruction. And then, generally speaking, they would leave the guru's home and they would enter either into the grahasta, the vanaprastha, or the uh, sannyas ashram, as explained in the seventh canto, at which time they were meant to have internalized the guru's instruction. And we can imagine that in a society without cell phones and such, so forth and so on, you know, you weren't going to be able to just call your guru to ask for instructions, and the letters might take many months and so forth. So we are meant to internalize the instruction of the guru, and we are meant to get specific in, in guidance in that way. And I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that difficult of a question. Well, I mean, um, can what, we? What would God want me to do? Can we pretty much do what we want as long as um, it's, uh, you know, favorable to our Krishna consciousness? I mean, I feel like, should I be bugging my my spiritual master with the, with the details of life? And uh, I mean, as if he's my counselor or something. And I'm just wondering, well, no, I should just kind of do my own thing and maybe just report to him what I'm doing. That sort of thing. I mean, I'm a little confused about that, the role of the spiritual master. Well, having spoken to a lot of, of people who have disciples, and myself having shiksha disciples, it's very rare that a guru wants to be involved in the minutia of a mature disciple's life. You know, in the beginning, like Prabhupada says in the Bhagavad Gita, in the beginning, this requires very expert guidance. So in the beginning of one's spiritual life, one may need to consult about everything. I mean, when I first started my time in Krishna consciousness, I didn't know anything. I didn't know about the specific kind of cleanliness rules. I mean, really nothing. But one is supposed to become mature. And there's, there's this funny true story of a devotee who wrote to, a letter to Prabhupada and signed it, begging to remain your useless servant. So, you know, uh, that's, we don't want to remain a useless servant. We want to have imbibed our Guru's instructions to the point that we can make decisions within the realm of those instructions. And I see that it's unusual that Krishna and Guru want us to do one specific thing. I mean, maybe sometimes Krishna is going to say, pick up your bow and fight the Gurus right here at Kurukshetra, you know, in this battlefield. And there might be a time that the guru will say to us, go here and do this. You know, that happens. But generally speaking, it's more chant 16 rounds minimum, follow these four greater principles, rise early in the morning, worship the deity, eat food offered to Krishna. 
and do something to spread the Krishna consciousness movement. Do something to teach others. Be a responsible person in the world and do something to teach others. And you know, you really don't have to ask your guru, should I, you know, wear a dhoti with a red border or a dhoti with a blue border today? I mean, that's just a botheration. Yeah, it's the, the guru doesn't want infantile disciples. The guru wants just like I was just hearing Prabhupada say yesterday how that a teacher wants to train the students to equal or excel him. That's the, the idea. Is that all right? Yes, I, I, so I'm understanding that you can pretty much do what you desire to do as long as it's uh, Krishna conscious. Um, and you don't, and, and the word botheration, I think it's a good word. I don't want to be a bother, you know, to with my spiritual master, with the minutia of life. But just, to, you know, I know it's so important to please the spiritual master. So, um, anyway, I think you've answered it. Thanks okay, a lot. Sure. I mean, it is also important when we have doubts to bring them to the guru. It's not that because we don't want to be a botheration, we don't take the important things. So, especially our philosophical questions and our big questions, that's why we have a guru. So, you don't want to go the other extreme and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk to my guru about anything. That's. You should be mature, <laughs> mature and, and balanced. But thank you for asking the question. Very nice question. Anybody else? Um, Irmala Prabhu, I have, I have a question. Um, I don't know if it's answerable or not, but um, after we leave our bodies and go back home, back to Godhead and are in the spiritual uh, world, will Srila Prabhupada continue to instruct us on how to serve Lord Krishna there? Well, that is a very interesting question. And in order to answer this question, we can look at the example of Shamananda and his guru Ridai Chaitanya. That Ridai Chaitanya's mood was that of a cowherd boy, and his disciple Shamananda's mood was that of a gopi. And therefore, as Shamananda was relishing his eternal position in the spiritual world, his instructors in the spiritual world were not the same jiva as his guru in this world. So all of us are supposed to come to the point where we realize our identity. And in realizing our identity, part of what we will realize is who we follow, who is our leader, who is our instructor in, our, in the eternal realm. And it is part of the instruction of our gurus in this world that that's what we should do. If we are Rupanugas, we are followers of Rupa Goswami. So Rupa Goswami is instructing us like that. But this is the process for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu instructing like that. This is the pro- practice of the higher realms of bhakti, the higher realms of sadhana bhakti. That's what we do. And that, that jiva may not be the same jiva who is our diksha or shiksha guru in this particular lifetime. Now, are we always indebted to our gurus in this world, in this lifetime and in other lifetimes? Oh, absolutely. But will they play exactly the same roles in our eternal identity? Probably not. You know, our roles there will be different according to our eternal identity. 
but always we always have this mood that they are that they are saviors that they've helped us we don't lose our our gratitude and our connection but the nature of the connection is going to change it's just like the name we have and you know we get a spiritual name that's not our eternal name thank you very much sure anybody else I was going to say that I really appreciate you bringing out throughout your class about uh, how uh, our identity guides what we do, uh, how we act. I saw how uh, both of my parents, but especially my mother, who recently died, she was uh, had severe Alzheimer, and uh, she was very antagonistic. As a matter of fact, she was the one who really spearheaded me getting deprogrammed at one time mm-hmm. early in my Krishna consciousness. So you imagine how um, unfavorable. Rejecting anything to do with Krishna consciousness or just even philosophy. She's just like so fried, you know, with me becoming a devotee. So only at the end of her life, when she had severe Alzheimer, did she ask these kind of questions. I mean, she was sitting... Um, in front of the TV, everyone's looking at TV, and she's off in the distance, and she just says, you know, who am I? Who am I really? And then, uh, like my sister, she said, you know, oh, mama, you know, this and that. She tries to put her in her bodily identity, but I understood what she was talking about. She went back to that innocence of childhood, was asking, who, who am I really? But the problem was that they're so far gone that what are you going to say to them? uh, They have no capacity to understand at that time of their life. Um, Anyway, I just found that quite frustrating Mm. for myself. It's also interesting, you know, once she stopped identifying as your mother, she didn't have that sort of antagonism anymore. That the antagonism was coming from, this is my son, and he has to be like me, and he has to be according to my, you know, social status and so forth and so on but if we analyze carefully we'll see that what we do psychiatrists, psychologists understand this and all the advertising is geared in this way that all of the choices we make we don't make choices by weighing good and bad against some sort of absolute platform we make choices by weighing good and bad against the concept of our identity what would a good brother do in this situation you know what would a good gang member do what would a good police officer do what would a good doctor do what would a good wife do that those are the questions we're real whenever we make a choice when everything that we decide that's how we are deciding it so if we start saying you know what would a good disciple do then we, we start approaching our, our real identity. So thank you very much, Shula Prabhupada Ki Jai. Jai. Jai, thank you very much. All glory to Shula Prabhupada. Jai. Jai.